We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. Spread the word. The JCPenney Friends and Family Sale is back. And this week, we're passing the savings on to you. Use your extra 30% off coupon to prep your home and style your family for Easter. That's extra savings on top of our great low prices. Plus, share your coupon with everyone you know and love. It's always better when we save together. JCPenney. Make everybody count. Offer valid 311 through 317. Exclusions apply. See store or jcp.com for details. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello out there in uh, archaeology podcast land. This is Dr. Alan Garfinkel. I'm the president and founder of the California Rock Art Foundation. And what we do is we identify, evaluate, manage, and conserve rock art both in Alta, California and in Baja, California. We conduct field trips. We have trainings, exercise. We do research. And in every way possible, we try to preserve, protect, and coordinate treasures of Alta and Baja California rock art, of which there are many and diverse. We also work closely with Native Americans and uh, partner with them to recognize and protect sacred sites. So for more info about the fabulous California Rock Art Foundation, you can go to carockart.org. Also, I'm I'm open to give me a call, 805-312-2261. We would uh, welcome sponsorship or underwriting, uh, helping us to defray the costs of our podcasts. And also membership in California Rock Art Foundation. And of course, donations since we are a 501c3 nonprofit scientific and educational corporation. God bless everyone out there in podcast land. You're listening to the Rock Art Podcast. Join us every week for fascinating tales of rock art, adventure, and archaeology. Find our contact info in the show notes and send us your suggestions. Hello, everyone. This is Dr. Alan Garfinkel introducing Rock Art Episode 33. We're going to be talking with Don Laponi, who is a rock art scholar and a fabulous author and one who's helping to bridge the gap between Native people and the general public. And specifically, his efforts are with the Kumeyaay Nation, with the La Rumorosa Rock Art. Welcome, everyone, to the 33rd episode of the Rock Art Podcast on the Archaeology Podcast Network. As you're well aware, I'm your host, Dr. Alan Garfinkel, and uh, this has been sponsored or facilitated through the California Rock Art Foundation. We're blessed and honored today to to, uh, revisit with uh, Don Laponi, who is a rock art scholar and also a uh, very successful author who's published two books on the rock art of the Kumeyaay there in Southern California. And we're going to be talking a bit about the way he has worked with those native people, how they've interacted with the author in some of these new programs, and how the books he's published have figured so centrally in some of this interaction. Don, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Hi, Alan. Hi, Don. Pleasure. Now, where are you located right now? I'm in San Diego. I'm uh, facilitating this from Bakersfield and our producers in Mexico. So this is a rather remarkable interaction facilitated by high technology. Don, so I think in this segment, 
if you would uh, give probably a bit of background on how you began in this whole journey, this whole adventure, both with your books and working with the Kumeyaay. Oh, thanks for having me on here too, Ellen. Since we talked last time, there's several new developments. And I just gave a benefit talk and people really responded to this little parable that I'd like to share with you. It's also reprinted in the first volume of La Rumorosa. So 50 years ago or more, I was about 17 in high school and my father had a severe decade long drinking problem that had taken him to really the edge of death. And as he had gotten sober, he wasn't sober very long. And those of you, someone as an alcoholic, know it's very difficult to get sober. So in his early sobriety, he decided that he would build this uh, recreational park in the desert near Hakumba. Just happens to be over the border from the city of La Rumorosa. That's the mother site, rock art style, that we're going to be talking about, uh, also called La Rumorosa. It's named after that village. There may be some significance in that. But anyway, so he had been with the Kumeyaay a work crew run by an Indian I will never forget who went by the name of Joe Young because he was so strong and there was some old classic movie a giant uh, King Kong type <laughs> creature named Joe Young. Anyway, Joe Young and my father had been hanging out, you know, for well over a year, maybe almost a year and a half. And anyway, so I was out there at this uh, work site, construction site a couple of hundred acres, maybe six or 700 acres. And the site is still there today. Uh, the park is still there today. But anyway, going back to the 70s, one evening, we would always walk around and look at the construction and see what we needed the next day from Mexico or from San Diego or El Centro. And so we were done with that. Dad took me uh, for a little walk. Uh, I remember he took me to this rock art site that to this day, I have not been able to relocate it. Uh, a pair of men. And so here we were, one man and one son, uh, going on this walk late in the day, the sun was going down, and he took me up this sand ridge. And this site, along with uh, the city of Cuba, is at about 4,500 feet above the sea. And that's important. So my father took me up to the top of this swale and said, do you know why they think there is a God? And at 17, I had no idea how to answer that question. So he said, dig at the sand at your feet. So I did, you know, I dug down, I don't know, a foot maybe, and I came across this layer of white seashells, not freshwater shells, but seashells, like you would find at the beach. And he said, go dig over there, you know, a couple feet away. So I did in the same result. So he said, you know why I think there is a God, because man did not do this. And so I mumbled something like, so you think it's spiritual or something? And he said, all I know is man did not do this. And the Kumeyaay had taught him something that he never forgot. He never went back to alcohol. I never saw him lose his temper. And he lived about another 40 years or so. He became you know, what you call an AA or other things, he had been spiritually converted by a so-called primitive person of the Kumeyaay. And 
I ignored that lesson for a long time, but then I was brought to my knees and somehow it came back to me. And so it was an important lesson that has endured long beyond my dad and this other Kumeyaay Indian. So I, I think that the lesson here that you're trying to to teach us by way of the parable, the, the word picture you've given us, is that Native people and the Native perspective on the world, they call it cosmology or worldview, is in fact potentially very influential healing and also transformative. Am I correct? I think so. You know, because in my actions with the Kumeyaay, say with different media, and that is that they operate on a different plane. I mean, this is traditional Native Americans, and of course mm-hmm. it's a generalization. Yes. But they operate on a different plane that is more along spiritual lines. That's just how they look at things. So when you say that they look at things on a spiritual line, help me understand how is that different from, let's say, conventional Western industrial philosophy or understanding of the world? Well, to, to, to put it in like really broad terms, for example, let's look at, and I'll, I'll keep this moderate, I promise. Mm-hmm. Let's look at, at the perspective on nature. I'm, I'm certainly not the first person to say this. Uh, I could quote the great Western writer, Edward Abbey, uh, Desert Solitaire, mm-hmm. that Western civilization and white men only look at the desert for what they can dig out of it. He said that, not a Native American or myself. And okay, so that's one perspective is we look at things for what can it do for us, you know, to make money or to make us rich. Right. So so just if I could par- paraphrase that, yeah. when the settlers came into various parts of the country, they were looking for the resources that they could extract for mining, for timber, or for ways that they could create a life for themselves from the land, let's say agriculture or ranching or what have you. But they have a a much more extractive view or... You know, Native Americans, I mean, they are practical. You know, I'm I'm just making an example out of this, but... Right. Let's try their perspective is more along the lines of what we would call animism and... Where that takes you is like you have rocks and you have caves and you have mountains and you have water and those types of things, natural things, and especially you have animals. But let's just take the inanimate part of the environment, like rocks, lakes, mountains, caves. Water. Where rock art ends up. Those things have a soul or a spirit. And I've actually read in uh, Stoffel's articles quoting one of the human tribes, I don't remember which one, but quoting, saying that a Native American would never make rock art for a casual purpose. They would ask permission from the rock and the rock would give it or they wouldn't give it. And that sounds kind of foreign to us, but I think we can take out of this is they seem to have a much greater respect for nature. As was related in a remarkable book to demonstrate this fact is uh, attending the wild by Cat, mm-hmm. a professor at UC Berkeley. You've seen that, Alan, that book. I have. I have, and I, I do appreciate and understand what you're saying. 
So to our audience and to members who are not, not sort of privy to that knowledge, Native people, even foragers, hunter-gatherers, people who are living simply at sort of the one of the most simplest types of societies where they, they tend to move and follow the uh, economic resources so that they, they really um, take their life ways and mirror the availability of key plant and animal resources so that they can extract them and they can procure them in a timely manner so that they can live. But in doing so, it appears to me that they attempt to mirror the natural cycles of the universe, and they're very aware of the way in which the landscape, the stone, the landforms, the water, the air, the, the plants, the animals, the sky, what have you, and how those all interact in almost a very spiritual or supernatural way. Yeah, I think so. I mean, they to me, they seem to operate the different perspective is they are part of nature and not the dictator over nature. Right. They're not the land managers, they're stewards. And they also feel that in some ways, the land and the animals and the resources that we call inanimate in some ways are sentient. So what that, what that word sentient means is alive with power. Power is um, an important principle with them. And, you know, for the audience, one thing before you, you might say, well, that's kind of silly and, you know, I don't really believe that or anything. There's two ideas that counter that. And, and a very important one is the Native Americans or whoever was here, and now there's some information from the highlands of Mexico that maybe they've been here up to 30,000 years. But I think we're getting at least pretty close to 15,000 years. That they've we been. are. And so they survived and excelled here for 30 times as long as Euro-American civilization has been here. And they succeeded. And one of the demonstrations of success doesn't come from them. It comes from the Spanish records of early Spanish people that made it here, say, in the 1500s. And they thought they had encountered God's Garden of Eden. They had, and this is from Cat Anderson's book. They had right. it, right. the Garden of Eden, but it had been tended not by God, but by Native Americans. So to clarify that, even simple foragers, simple hunters and gatherers, those people that we believe lived off the natural resources of the landscape, were doing what, what might be called incipient cultivation or using fire and using yeah. other sorts of activities to prune and groom and steward the environment such that it's more productive and would uh, tend to those resources and have the available resources in a way that would be both beneficial to the animals and plants as well as the people. Yeah, I think so. It would take a tremendous amount of knowledge you know, to achieve that. And they didn't have books or the internet or Absolutely. anything. You know, they had each other and what they had learned. Well, I think that's a good place to, to stop, at least in this segment. And it kind of gives us the philosophical grounding or the background to the next segment. And I think in the next segment, maybe we can jump down from the high levels of philosophy and talk maybe more empirically 
about what you've done with the rock art, the La Rumorosa rock art, your two books, and the book we're working on together, and the programs that you're beginning to assemble that might benefit the Native people. See you all in the flip-flop. Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast Network. We strive for high-quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zencaster. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. Zencaster allows us to record high-quality audio with no stress on the guest. Just send them a link to click on, and that's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do automatic transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for 30% off your first three months or go to Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R.com and use the code ROCKART. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Spread the word. The JCPenney Friends and Family Sale is back. And this week, we're passing the savings on to you. Use your extra 30% off coupon to prep your home and style your family for Easter. That's extra savings on top of our great low prices. Plus, share your coupon with everyone you know and love. It's always better when we save together. JCPenney. Make everybody count. Offer valid 311 through 317. Exclusions apply. See store or jcp.com for details. Welcome back to our second segment. This is uh, your host, Dr. Alan Garfinkel, and we're uh, blessed to have Don Lapone with us. And Don's going to continue in this bit of an odyssey and talk about his association with the Kumeyaay, both through his two books, but I think, and most importantly, even through some of the programs he's begun to, to pioneer in interacting with the Kumeyaay and helping them to preserve and have knowledge and recognize their heritage and also develop individuals who would then have the expertise to be involved with heritage management. Well, let's move on from philosophy to some of the empirical side of the practical side of what you've done with these two books and also the pioneering venture where you're partnering with the Kumeyaay Nation and developing opportunities for them. Let's say 12, 13 years ago, I was trying to think of a way or something to do with, with this passion of rock art. And a friend of mine who studied snakes, uh, William Wells, over in Arizona, uh, handed me a list of rock art sites in San Diego that I'd never seen. So I enlisted a couple of friends and we started looking and that group grew and, mm-hmm. you know, it networked and pretty or I don't know, about half a dozen kumeyaay involved in this. And it got me to thinking, you know, about the past, like what we shared in the first segment. Yeah, but you're saying even during the discovery phase of these rock arts sites that you profiled in your two books, the kumeyaay themselves were involved. In, In what way? Can you elaborate a bit? Yeah, it began to dawn on me that, you know, I'd probably seen, I don't know, thousands of rock art panels. And 
as enamored as I was with that culture, you know, that prehistoric culture, and I still am, you know, I thought, oh, these people are still here. And when you think about that a little bit, and I'd have to say I started to feel guilty because I was so focused on the ancient past. And I thought, you know, I remember the Kumeyaay that, that transformed my father. And in San Diego, at least, you know, they have a difficult time. I, I might smash one of the illusions that we might have as outsiders, at least as being true in Southern California. Much of the casino money in the investments and the payouts and that um, I've been told by Kumeyaay is Las Vegas money. It's not really Kumeyaay money to any large degree. And they do get a small stipend, about a thousand a month. And, you know, that's a lot better than nothing, but it's, it's still, it's a very hard life on the reservations. That's what I'm getting to. And so it occurred to me, you have all this glorious and magnificent culture here in San Diego and elsewhere, but the descendants of those people are struggling and there could be an opportunity to help them. And I thought, well, what can I do? And one of the things is there was gigantic vacuum. Nobody had really studied La Romorosa. And I didn't know if it was possible, if we'd find anything or what we would find and what we'd do with it. Also, there was the advent about that time of de-stretch, which um, to make a long story short, many years later, we've uncovered on this side of the border for La Romorosa, 2,250 groups, you know, subgroups of panels and that, and 160 rock art sites. And I'm sure there's at least as many uh, on the other side of the border. How did the Kumeyaay participate in your discoveries? Well, I started with, you know, what publications are there? Because we were going to put in local expertise, not just, you know, pretty photographs of the pictographs, mostly in some petroglyphs. And I mm -hmm. thought, let's have both. So that way, it's more than just a picture book. And so I started looking and digging for related professional publications like American Indian Rock Art and yeah. other publications. And there was just about zero. Uh, I ended up with a couple of pieces that had been written, you know, by Native Americans. And then mm -hmm. what else can we do? And so... I got a couple of Kumeyaay to volunteer to be interviewed, and those interviews were another eye-opener. I picked one person my age and another person in her 90s, his grandmother. Yeah, and those interviews were included in the books, were they not? Yes. Yeah, there are, yeah. all the material is in, in book one, which is sold out. But if you're interested, you know, I, I'm happy to send you an e-book. And then also, I guess, the Kumeyaay you mentioned were actually uh, occasionally participants in the field work for those books, or no? Yes. Ah, how many Kumeyaay? What, what age? What gender? Etc. Well, except for the one uh, grandmother that I interviewed, every yeah. was a man and okay. of ability, so they were, you know, uh, some were much, much younger than I was, but mm -hmm. about half a dozen. And what? And what did they feel about this exercise? This field work? This. Uh, period of discovery of rock art? What were their thoughts? You know, I, I kind of expected, you know, that they would be suspicious or mm -hmm. don't think like, here's one more white guy, you know, what's he going to do to us? Yeah. And I didn't encounter any of that. Okay. Let me end, you know, with one of the book 
Well, let's just say we published the books and I got a yes. grant and we were able to give uh, 500 copies of each book to the Kumeyaay students mm -hmm. and elders and whoever else wanted one, but we really wanted to give to the students. Yes. You cannot imagine what that was like when I went out there to take the students on a field trip. Nobody could stop crying. I, I can't even stop now, really. So it was, very, it was very much touching. They had experienced the discovery and the beauty of their heritage, and it touched them emotionally. Yeah, I think it got to everyone. You know, somebody would have told me, hang on a second. If somebody would have told me that would cost you $100,000 to get that reaction, knowing what the reaction was, I probably would have done it. Yeah. I had a similar set of reaction to when I crafted a book on the indigenous people of the Tehachapi and Western Mojave Desert. And when they saw the book and when they saw the relatives in print, it, it really did, did touch them. And it's a way of, you know, it's, it's a heritage and a reverence and an ancestral thing, isn't it? It's part of the land and the people. One of the statistics I could quote about the book, you know, this is something that they probably could not have done on their own. We right. had 50 people at one point or another uh, trotting in the mountains over about a decade. And that's how we ended up with all that material. And that's fabulous. Some of the people are insanely passionate about this and are willing. I mean, Darren, for example, who was my co-author on the first book and contributed yeah. to the second book. He could barely walk for a couple of years afterwards. He had to have surgeries. And he wow. just some incredible backpacking. That's the kind of effort that yeah. went into it. Except so it was strenuous. It was extraordinary. It was really uh, difficult to uh, document and discover and uh, put these two books out. Now, you had said a number of copies of those books. I presume I know book one, but also book two were provided to the Kumeyaay people. And were they in turn uh, given to schools or universities? How did this work? Yeah, I, I think through the Imperial Valley Desert Museum, which, you know, they also sell the books. And it's incredible. Kumeyaay Museum in Ocotillo. Their executive director, David Breckner, uh, introduced me to the liaison of the Kumeyaay Education Council, Bob Bartolome, who is just like radioactive in terms of energy. Mm -hmm. He works with the high school, the Kumeyaay okay. High School uh, up in the Mountain District. Okay. Um, they have about 300 students. And that, you know, is how I kind of hooked into, you know, that part of the... And then what did he do for you? Or how did you facilitate this knowledge being input to that uh, school system? I met a lot of people that were, that were so grateful that, that our group had done this. And I thought, you know, I got to thinking about when I looked around for... Uh, first book and how I couldn't locate really uh, anybody who was a scientist in this area that was a Native American. Mm -hmm. Kumeyaay. But I did meet a couple of people that were Kumeyaay, left the reservation, went and made a career, and were doing just fine. And they decided, you know what, I'm going back to the reservation and be of help to my people and kind of turned my back on materialistic pursuits. Mm -hmm. 
we really need more people like that. Absolutely. After speaking with uh, local media and that, with Kumeyaay president, you know, I thought they they kept repeating this phrase, um, we want a seat at the table. And, you know, I started thinking about that because, you know, just to my thinking, my impression was, is that the outside world was eating them alive. And I thought we have to get them uh, in the shape of kind of like being a bridge culture, yeah. like where yeah. they have some academic credentials, right. their Native American heritage. That way they can defend what they have and hopefully build a better tomorrow. And so that became the thrust, you know, everything we were doing. So how has that uh, begun to develop uh, empirically? Maybe that's the next yeah. next segment of our discussion. But how did you begin to build that bridge and begin to facilitate obtaining a seat at the table for the Kumeyaay people? What was the practical side? How do those books play into this? And how does your program partnering with the Kumeyaay work? The books are written for an educated uh, college level, high school level audience that's somewhat informed. We don't start on square one, but you know we figure who would buy the book except somebody interested in rock art. So we kind of wrote it that way, and you know there have been no shortage of people willing to buy buy into that and buy the books. So we thought, well, you know, I need to do something because we have a lot of data, a ton of data, as as you know, Alan. And so I started reading about the ethnography and found not 200 citations, direct citations pertinent to Native Americans making rock art. And a man that played a big uh, role in that for California and for San Diego especially was Alfred Krober. Would you say he's kind of like the father of California archaeology? Yes, California archaeology, anthropology. He uh, pioneered the first PhD program west west of the Mississippi through the University of California, Berkeley. Well, about a hundred years ago, he got together with philanthropist Phoebe Hearst, and I think they set up the Berkeley School of Anthropology. That's uh, correct. Dean. But one thing they did was, uh, I thought, had tremendous foresight considering the time. About a hundred years ago, they set up a scholarship for Native Americans to attend that school uh, free if they could qualify to get in. And I thought, well, that might be a big leap to go from a mountain uh, high school to Berkeley. Is there something we could do that would, you know, serve as a catalyst for that? And so what was born out of that was the idea that we could come up with an internship that would give college credits an introduction to scientific thinking. And of course, some archaeology, not telling them they had to be archaeologists, but at least introducing them to science. Now, is it is this for is this for high school students or is this for? No, it's for high school students. Okay, and then and then they would they would receive some sort of college credit. You said, is that right? Yes. Yeah, we've got that approved, and so okay, you know, it really flushes out one their experience to their yes CV, resume. Mm-hmm. You know, an opportunity, I think. And it's and it certainly does provide them with at least a seed or a beginning to um, perhaps open their eyes to opportunities where they can serve as liaisons or facilitators. 
almost a bridge, as you said, between yeah. the academic no, world the plan, exactly. and the Native Americans. So if I was to give you some a, a parallel example, during a, a very large wind energy project that I was the principal investigator for, we had upwards of 50 people, Native Americans from two different tribes that I trained in um, Native American monitoring and in the field of cultural resource management, anthropology, archaeology, what have you, a rather intensive, you know, two-day affair. And from that, believe it or not, a couple of the Native people, these are indigenous people with Native American background and affiliation and ancestry, became full-time cultural resource managers, uh, Native American monitors that... That work in that work in the field and earn an income from doing just that. At least two that I'm aware of, and I don't know how many others, but I do know two are full time doing that particular niche. And I think that's rather interesting because that doesn't happen very often. Right. So, I, so I think your your way of pioneering some of this uh, way of thinking is also very beneficial and uh, laudatory. And with that, we've used up our second segment, and we'll uh, plunge into the third where we'll have a chance to get into the nitty-gritty details and maybe some case studies. See you in the flip-flop, gang. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today, and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. the word. The JCPenney Friends and Family Sale is back, and this week we're passing the savings on to you. Use your extra 30% off coupon to prep your home and style your family for Easter. That's extra savings on top of our great low prices. Plus, share your coupon with everyone you know and love. It's always better when we save together. JCPenney. Make everybody count. Offer valid 311 through 317. Exclusions apply. See store or jcp.com for details. Well, this is the third and final segment of the Rock Art Podcast, episode 33. And we're talking to uh, Don Lapone, the famous author and also <laughs> rock, rock art scholar. <laughs> Don's laughing in the background. He's, he's published two books. He's becoming quite a well-known personality. But what we're focusing in here is not on Don, but on the Kumeyaay people and what yeah. Don has been able to do through his uh, endless efforts at trying to protect and document their heritage, but even moving a bit further and partnering with the Kumeyaay people and providing them with a means of being a bridge and garnering expertise in an area of heritage management. Why don't we talk a bit about that, Don? It became apparent to me that it would help them, you know, from interacting with them. And this this is not... Uh, a knock or anything like that. I, I think the world would be better off if more people had their perspective about, you know, respect for all things and that. But in a way, at least I'm kind of vulnerable to be so attached to these, the little that we've let them keep. It, it just kind of leaves them vulnerable because they are more of a spiritual people. And they're tethered to the land. The land is their heritage, the connection of the place. And if you're tethered to the land in our Western industrial complex, sometimes the economic opportunities are limited. Am I correct? Yeah. 
That's true. And I mean, ideally, I mean, this is just my evaluation of it. I think if we can uh, help some of these very gifted students that, you know, to be honest, on the reservation, if any rock art people have been on the Navajo reservation, that's a good example, or other reservations, the opportunities are very limited, really limited. And so to help, you know, this, this um, scholarship program is uh, open to their best students. They have to apply. And we could really only afford to give uh, 10 students that chance uh, each time, each summer. I wish we could do more, but we can do that much, you know, to help them bridge our world in order to save their world. I mean, that's kind of the, um, the way we're looking at it. The acronym for the program is kinship. And I think it is a kinship between us making the framework, but they have to do all the work. I don't see any other way to accomplish this realistically. So in other words, they, they have to have, uh, they have to do a bit of initiative, correct? And they have to apply. Yes. And they've got to be uh, some of the more gifted and more intellectually, you know, people who who care about conservation, heritage preservation, heritage management. And in this world, we we also call them cultural resources management. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there are positions for native people who have that kind of perspective, both from an academic standpoint. And also in terms of the uh, environmental planning realm. Is, is that correct? Yes. Anthony Pico is one of the most prominent Kumeyaay in the Kumeyaay Nation. He leads uh, the Viejas group, uh, past uh, tribal council leader, you know, an early supporter, uh, even before book one was out. He was there for us and he opened some doors. I mean, he gave us copyright uh, on that the Kumeyaay hadn't released to anyone. And he's still right there. I've been, I emailed him last week about some stuff. He, he even though he's a leader and I'm sure he's tough, he's huge, a big man, uh, mm-hmm. has a PhD. Wow. But he is very sensitive to feelings and things like that. Mm-hmm. Sure. And that's so he has learned both worlds. And so he, he can appreciate this effort. He's, so he's, he's been, been a big supporter. Sort of live in both those Just worlds one. And be a liaison for um, both connecting with the general public and the academic, but also probably the business world and trying to find the, the mediums and the mechanisms to connect the dots. How's that? Yeah. So empirically, what would you like the people listening to this program to learn about your program and how can they help? Well, I appreciate that. It's program happens, like I said, during the summer. It's 10 weeks, uh, 10 days. And it's a mix of classroom learning, but it's not really like a classroom. It's in the museum uh, where we go through artifacts and talk about them. And we incorporate both sides, uh, the scientific side and the traditional side as, as to what something might mean. And we do a lot of field trips, not just to pictographs or petroglyphs, but to rock alignments and taglios, other ground figures, dance circles, sleeping circles. Yeah, so it's an in-class and in the field. So it's a hands-on experience as well as an 
in class experience, sort of the full immersion. How's that? Yeah, I've, you know, I've taken a lot of uh, school children uh, to these sites, you know, what I think are young, fourth grade, sixth grade, uh, mm -hmm. students, Kumeyaay, mostly high school students, and both populations, white and Indian, really know a ton. And that has to be from their teachers, because it's not in the textbooks. That was another okay. problem we started this in California, they were not allowed to teach uh, about the genocide or the history of Native Americans. And that was a problem because, you sure. know, how would anybody know? And the teachers, I guess, rebelled against this and taught the students anyway on their own time sure. and effort. And so we're trying to kind of live up that by... So you're trying to, have, trying to give a candid and authentic communication to the students, both from the Native American standpoint and also from the more scholarly academic standpoint as well. Are you uh, attempting to gather donations? Yes, that would really help. We've been lucky that we've been able to get some grants and some private donations, and we're always working on more. But the program costs about $10,000 a year to run. And that's with everything being donated. It pays for the students to attend. And we need to do something like that, or they would go to work at the casinos or Burger King or something like that, which is not going to be all that helpful in terms of getting them to a university. When people donate, are they donating to a nonprofit? And is it facilitated with a, an institution? Yes, that's a good point. It is nonprofit. Uh, Imperial Valley Desert Museum is the host uh, for the internship program. And it's in Ocotillo, California, not too far from the border, but essentially in the middle of no place. Um, the little town of Ocotillo, about 90 miles east of San Diego, about half an hour west of El Centro. Uh, David Breckner, uh, Dr. David Breckner is the executive director. Uh, he's familiar with all of this and we're in contact with him. He's the leader of the internship program. I see. Uh, he would be happy to talk to you. They have an easy to find website, phone number, website, email, everything at Imperial Valley Desert Museum. It's pretty easy to find. If you cannot find it for some reason, La Rumorosa uh, Rock Art has a web page and you can go there. And you'll find the same information and my contact information. You can contact me if you uh, need any help or further explanation. That would be fine. Well, it sounds great. And I, I think uh, you've, you've helped us tremendously to understand a little bit about your passion, your interest, and your focus on this uh, long-term odyssey of assisting the Kumeyaay and uh, allowing them to protect their own heritage and actually get uh, get particular ways to be employed formally and uh, participate with various entities, both environmental planning and also other sort of oversight agencies. I know that the California Department of Transportation, the Bureau of Land Management, the National Park Service, the uh, Forest Service, and many other such entities all employ Native Americans uh, with various levels of expertise. But it's, but it sounds like to me that, that this might be a, a seed to sow that would uh, catch the enthusiasm and perspective of a Native individual 
and show them an opportunity to do things a little differently. Is that correct? Yeah, that's yeah, that's it. Don, it's really been a pleasure. Anything else you want to share before we sign off? Well, one little thing, because we started on spiritual. Yes, let's end on spiritual. You know, Absolutely. Of, of course, we had to get to the practical, because if you're not practical, you just can't get anything done, really. Right. But let's go back to the spiritual for a moment, because yes. this directly relates to rock art. Sure. And many of the people listening would be familiar with the rock art shamanism or spiritual connection. And what Al and I have been working on is more of a worldview, uh, not the worldview in terms of perspective, but taking a look at around the world, what does rock art say and what does shamanism say? And you'll have to wait for the whole story, you know, for probably another six months or longer. Uh, this will be the third book and it's designed more for a professional audience. But what we found in looking around the world was that virtually all areas of the world at one time or another had a version of shamanism. And again, shamanism has been with us for a very long time, much longer than really any other religious entity. And if it didn't work, it wouldn't be a value to these practical people. So I think that connection, when looking at it beyond Europe, and beyond South Africa, which are important, but they're only a part of the story. And I think we're finding that worldwide, early man had spiritual needs. And, you know, those needs have not gone away. So I think there's a lot more support for rock art as being a spiritual entity in many, but not all cases. So Absolutely. I think that scientists are coming to know and believe that the images on stone that we see, paintings and rock drawings, are powerful and they communicate to people at many different levels simultaneously. And they are efficacious. In other words, the, the, the shamans, the ritual adepts, the individual people who are ceremonially uh, recognized uh, serve as a bridge between the celestial sphere and the terrestrial plane, as I call it. And so mm -hmm. when you're talking to these people and native people themselves, they understand this. They work, in, they work on that level. They're um, constantly interested in much more of a um, powerful and connected relationship model and one that as you said has had longevity and sustainability far beyond what our simple western industrial complex has been able to do and so i think there's lessons to learn from native people both from their philosophical religious spiritual but also from the more mundane and nuts and bolts ways in which they used the earth, but, but respected it and treasured it and paid homage to the nature of those natural cycles. Do you, do you agree? Yes. Cause you know, I was, I was just thinking of this when you were talking, uh, something you said in there is take this as uh, a little aside. If Jesus had painted rock art, would you be interested in what it looked like? I don't think anybody could say no. 
However, if someone like you or I, who was connected to the spiritual world, if they painted rock art, would you be interested? Would you want to see it? And that's, I think, about exactly what's going on. So maybe that's why a lot of us, you know, feel such an attachment. I think that the rock art is, is visually riveting, but it also hits us at an emotional level, almost a, it's, it's hard to explain. It's a spiritual level as well, but it's a, it's a sense of, of timelessness. You know, I always say that rock art sites are a place of personal immortality or a, mm-hmm. um, or a um, memory palace. And those, those pictures that we're talking about give us a sense of what someone's perspective was centuries or millennia ago. And it's an instantaneous bridge from the almost a, a supernatural connection. You know, a lot of the images were painted before Western culture got there. And that, yes. that uh, really interests me too. As far as I know, there's only one paper that dates La Rosa, and it was done by Portayo on some Baja panels. And some, I think he dated, you know, from my memory, uh, 1400 to 1700. So that means some of them were painted before uh, Western culture got here. These are figurative art, I think. Well, I think with that, we're going to have to say a, a fond farewell to our Lodomorosa talk and to Don's reflections about this multi-decadal odyssey. Don, I so appreciate the time you spent with us, and I'm sure that uh, the listeners may want to know more about what you're doing and how to help you with your passionate outreach to the uh, Kumeyaay. So you say that they can contact both the La Rumorosa uh, website and also the, um, the Desert Museum, the Imperial Valley Desert Museum. Am I correct? Yeah, the museum is good for questions about the internship, the Kumeyaay internship. Right. You know, whatever else you would have about the museum. And then we have a book website, uh, LaRomorosaRockArt.com. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Don. We so appreciate your, your time and energy and your remarkable perspective. With that, I'll see you all next week. Thanks for tuning in uh, out there in uh, the rock art archaeology podcast land. Thanks for listening to the Rock Art Podcast with Dr. Alan Garfinkel and Chris Webster. You can find this podcast on the educational podcast app Lyceum, L-Y-C-E-U-M, and wherever you find podcasts. Find show notes and contact information at www.arcpodnet.com forward slash rockart. Thanks for listening, and thanks for sharing this podcast with your family and friends. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV Traveling America, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. 
visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info.